No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. Because that's what we all do every day when we lift each other up, right? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, that we have this opportunity um, to gather together. Um, that we enjoy such incredible freedom in Canada to worship you how we choose, when we choose, and to meet publicly together, Lord. And it's because we're so used to that, it's so easy to forget that that's not the reality for a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world. Mm -hmm. So as I pray for Gordy, I also want to remember them and ask for your safety and protection upon them and how they're gathering uh, all around the world um, to do the same thing to hear from you. Lord, please open your ears and please, Gordy. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Wade. Good morning, everybody. Well done, faithful ones, overcoming the spring ahead. Uh, Wade's prayer brings things into perspective. It's not really that rough, is it? Uh, We're worshiping in a free country, in a beautiful city, on an amazing morning, and I've got my voice back, mostly. Um, I was actually almost 100%. And then last night, I took my grandson to a soccer game. And uh, soccer grandpa took over. And um, uh, I mean, how do you be, be like, I had this vow, I wasn't going to say anything. But then he got the ball, and he made this amazing play, and nobody was saying anything. So I had to fill in the gaps, right? Anyway, he did, he did amazing. Did just so proud of him. And... And I'm going to talk today about uh, the golden calf, the story, that kind of familiar story in Exodus. If you're just joining us this morning, we've been going through Exodus, um, look look at at that part of Exodus that's connected to their desert travels, and we're calling it Lessons from the Desert. And uh, I want to start today by um, a familiar story that uh, if you've taken Vineyard 101, or as we call it, Welcome to the Vineyard, um, we often begin with a story that was told by Stephen Covey a few years ago in his book, First Things First, about this guy who's doing a time management seminar, and some of you have heard me tell this before, where he's got this big kind of metal tub, and he fills, packs it full of boulders, and uh, then he asked, you know, he does everything he can to pack them in, and then he asks the audience, can he get anything more in? And they say no, and he pulls out some gravel. And he dumps the gravel in the, in the metal K, uh, container and again asks if, he, if they think he can get anything more in, and they say no, and he pulls out some sand. And he pours sand in the, in the container, and lastly he asks, do you think I can get anything more in? Again, they say no, and he's got some water, and he dumps it in. And then he asks the crowd, what's the message? What's the lesson? And they're all going, oh, it's time management. I guess the lesson is it's amazing how much you can pack into an hour. He said, no, 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 no. He said, the point is, if you didn't put the boulders in first, they would have never got in. If you don't schedule what's important, then the urgent will take over your life. You have to put the boulders in. And the boulders are our are, are greatest value and highest priorities. Those are our boulders. Um, a few years ago, I experienced this when I was the parent of teenagers. That a high value for us as a family was relationships of intimacy and trust. This is the highest value that we stated in Vineyard 101 as a church. If you take the introductory course to our church, we introduce by saying this is our highest value and our first priority. It's first things first. It's the boulder. We make sure that gets in because if it doesn't, then uh, we default to other things. And a few years ago when I was a parent of teenagers, I I felt like our family was coming apart at the seams because of our 
schedules in soccer or sports or life and whatever. And I just had this incredible passion to make sure that one, at least one meal a day we had together. And I remember that one meal a day was like a boulder for us. It became the place where we were still family, where we still talked. No agenda. We didn't say, okay, what sin did you commit today? But it just, the safety of the meal time was so precious because it opened up our hearts to each other. And that's the power of, of meals, isn't it? It's the, it? There's something about eating together and you see it all through the Bible and you're going to see it in our text today about the power of stopping to eat together. So this pillar is, seems to be, surprisingly enough, what God is trying to train Israel is their pillar, is their highest priority and their highest value. And we see it, of course, in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments summed up our love God and love people. So, so when we say relationships of intimacy and trust, we're talking about with God and with, with each other. And, and Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments as love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. You couldn't boil it to down to one command, it's two. And, and of course, um, God gives him the Shema. So God is training a bunch of slaves. How do a bunch of slaves learn who've been nothing but machines, human doings for 400 years, learn that relationship is the highest priority? That's a hard lesson. That's not easy. So just in summary, remember that they've come out of slavery. They, they took refuge in Egypt from the promised land with Joseph and all his family. And they, hit, they, they took refuge in Goshen in Egypt. And then a, a few generations later, a pharaoh oppressed them. And then through Moses, God delivered them and took them, instead of, as the crow flies, back to the promised land, their journey is this way. They go a long detour through the desert because they have been slaves for so many years, they don't know how to be free. So God has to train them. So this value of relationship and love was to mark their constitution and character as the people of God. And so the, the first lesson that God gave them was pace. Their pace was the pace of the baby strollers and the wheelchairs and the seniors. Their pace was the pace of uh, pregnant moms. It was unhurried. Because God wanted them to know you cannot have relationship as your highest priority if your life is hurried. Unhurriedness is critical for relationship to, to stay as your highest priority. And it's critical for you as a family. It's critical for us as a church. It's critical for us as individuals. If you're going to have a relationship with God and intimacy with God and each other, we have to have an unhurried pace, and that is hard work in our culture, because we're living still in Egypt. We're still under the, the whip of the taskmaster, aren't we? Go, 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 go. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they had to learn to take a day off. They hadn't had one for 400 years. So the first thing, I love it, when they come out of the Passover, God says, first thing, take a day off. And they went into withdrawal. What do we do? we got nothing to do. God said, do nothing. I remember when the church in England invited me to come and recover from my nervous breakdown. They said, how do you feel if you just come and do nothing? Just be. And I had no idea what they meant. I, I, knew, what, I knew it. I needed that. But I didn't, know, I didn't know what I would do with myself. And so, he, he, and so the Ten Commandments, of course, is hinged by the Sabbath. You notice that the Exodus 20 version, the, the longest commandment is the Sabbath. It goes on and on and on and on about the Sabbath. Right, in the, right? smack dab in the middle. So they have this co command through the leaven, like the way the leaven was given to them, was training them to take. They, God invented the week. There was no such thing as a week or a weekend before then. So God gave them the week and the weekend just to be. And so they, they began to learn rhythms of breathe in, breathe out. 
heart pumps blood and heart, you know, like they're, the whole, whole of creation, the seasons, it's, it's about see, rhythms and seasons, which is important for relationships staying as the highest priority. And then the Ten Commandments were given, and then after the Ten Commandments, he takes another chapter to talk about this Sabbath, about stopping. So as they come down to Sinai, here in this area, they're, they're learning also about being interdependent, that they're not autonomous machine units, that they're on a team, they're in a family. They learned that kind of through Aaron and Hur, didn't they? When the people were fighting, they depended on Moses having his hands up, and Moses depended on Aaron and Hur having his hands up, keeping his hands up. So there's this interdependency that they're learning, that they're all in the team where everybody gets a uniform and everybody gets to play. We're all in this together. And that they are a nation of priests. That they're not peons anymore. They're not cogs. They're not peasants. They're royalty. They're a royal priesthood. They, they, they can't get their head around that. It takes them 40 years to get that slave mentality out of their head. And many didn't. So then they come to Sinai, and they have this cosmic episode that's just unbelievable. I mean, the text we have today will not make sense unless I tell you this little excerpt from Exodus 24 before we get into Exodus 32. Because you remember, they, God spoke to them and said, Woohoo! No more mediator. We're all going to be family. And they said, No! Don't talk to us directly. Go through Moses. And so this hierarchy was, un, you know, it, it was like a concession until the new covenant that God allowed were only special people, went into the Holy of Holies once a year. And it, was it was not God's heart. He wanted intimacy and relationship and communion with us. So God calls Moses. It says they went up to the mountain, this mountain, Listen to this. This is from Exodus 24. I'll just read it to you before we get to our text. So God, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Did you hear that? They saw God. Okay, they didn't see his face because he said later, if you see my face, you'll die. And we'll talk more about that. Nate's going to talk about it in a few weeks and in the, in the, there's some interesting things going on there about what does it mean not to see God's face so that'll kill us. But they saw God. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapsus lazuli. I think I said it right. Lapis lazuli, which is a mineral. As it's bright blue as the sky, as you, heard, as you saw today. So imagine God's, God's got this footstool, this, this sky blue footstool. They see this. And it says, and God did not raise up his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. They had, they had, they had dinner with God. On this mount, this was going on up here. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain. This just gets me. And stay here. And I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law of commandments. How many were there? Yeah, and then you have a few chapters where there's some case law. He gives a few instructions how the priests are supposed to dress. How long is that going to take? An hour or two? How long does it take you to read from Exodus chapter 20 to Exodus 32? Maybe an hour, right? What else was going on? So Moses set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered it. So imagine, this guy disappears into this. Moses disappears into that. Okay? And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. 
To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days. <laughs> what were they doing? I mean, it took only an hour or two to get all that other stuff done. What were they doing? And the people waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they played Scrabble again. What was God doing? What was he doing? What was going on in this 40 days? He was giving Moses and the people the boulder. It's about knowing me. It's about relationship with me. And with one another. And the people got restless. The people saw that Moses took a long time to come down from the mountain. So they gathered around Aaron. And they said to him, Come, make us a God that will lead us. This fellow Moses brought us up out of Egypt, but we don't know what's happened to him. After 40 days, if a guy's there, you know, in this, in this thing, you kind of, after 40 days, you kind of go, I think Moses' theology was wrong. Huh? He's probably off. And his, his version of God, that's too undefinable for us. That's too chaotic. It's too confusing. We need something a little more tangible. Something we can get our hands on here. He's probably burned to a crisp. So it's time to take charge. We got to get going. There's no leadership here. All this ambiguity and waiting and being together and listening and being present to God and one another. That's, that's all foggy. We need some clarity here. So give us a God. Now remember that idolatry defined in, in Scripture is where creator and creation get reversed. Okay? Remember at the fall, and many, many scholars see this as the fall of Israel, just as there was the fall of humanity. This is the description of the fall of Israel. But idolatry is, is basically... At, at the fall, we became God. We, you know, if you imagine a solar system, we said we're going to be the sun. Everything else will revolve around us, right? So the ancient world created gods and goddesses to serve us in our image. And so it, the age of the Israelites was a brutal age of spiteful goddesses and cruel god kings. Just like people. We created God in our image. So they were geographical deities. They had different gods for different regions, right? And so when they would move into a different area, they'd want to know, well, who's the god in this area and make sure we do what do, you know, makes him or her happy so, so things go well for us. And that's why they didn't, they didn't like the god of Israel because the god of Israel was going, listen, I'm not only your god, but I'm the god of the Philistines and I'm the god of the Babylonians. I'm the god of all people. They didn't like that. They wanted an ethnocentric god a nationalistic, patriotic God who, flag, who, who flew their flag, right? And he didn't buy it. He said, you are my representatives to all the people of the earth. So it strikes at the very heart of things. Kenny, I need, a, I need your help here. Uh, can, can you go get your coffee in a minute? So do you, do you mind... It's kind of like falling backwards. Okay? How's your arms? They're good. Are they? Okay. So, you know, you've all seen that exercise, right? Where somebody just has to stand behind somebody and they fall backwards. So I want you to imagine the Christian life. There's, two, there's a Catholic priest who wrote about this I read recently. Most of us imagine the Christian life climbing a mountain. You know, like we just got to get there. We got to get there. He said, actually, true spirituality is you're climbing the steep mountain 
and you fall backwards into the arms of someone that you trust, who cares for you and loves you. That's, the, that's Christian spirituality. And I don't like that. You don't like that. Because at least with the climbing, we're in control. We can do something. But Christian spirituality, so Kenny, I'm going to trust you. Okay. All right. All right, bud. Your shoulder cuff is healed. Okay, good. All right. So ready? I'm coming back. You're not going to let me fall, right? All right, here we go. Oh, yeah. Thank you, bud. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Go get your coffee. So. <laughs> I haven't been running for a few weeks. I've been sick. Um, so there, there's, this is at the core of it. They're, they're, they're going, no, this is too ambiguous to, to entrust ourselves to a God that we can't see. So Aaron answered them, take the gold earrings off your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring the earrings to me. So all the people took off their earrings. They brought them to Aaron. He took what they gave him and made it into a metal statue of a god. It looked like a calf. Aaron shaped it with a tool. Then the people said, Israel, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. When people lose their self-understanding of who they are as the people of God, it puts really strange pressure on leaders. Now, Aaron, what he should have done, and I'm not saying I would have done it if I were Aaron. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I'll tell you what he should have done is he should have said to them, uh, let me remind you of who you are. That is the job of leadership. A lot of my work is reminding you. But he forgot himself. So, scholars say it was probably more like a big, strong, virile bull that they came up with. And I want you to understand, in their mind, they felt that they were creating an image of Yahweh. They didn't feel they were abandoning Yahweh. They didn't like Moses' version of Yahweh. They wanted something that was concrete, that was, there was certainty and visibility. Many scholars believe that, that when they were passing through the Red Sea, they saw, you know those creatures in Ezekiel that were before the throne that looked, one looked like a calf and an ox? Many of them said, well, we, we got a little glimpse of what Yahweh looks like. Let's, let's have something. And others, um, it was very common to use animals like this as a throne for a god. A god would be seated on, on top of an animal like that. But in their mind, they thought this was still Yahweh. It was just their version of Yahweh. Now, don't believe me? Listen to what Aaron says. When Aaron saw what they were doing, he built an altar in front of the calf, and he said, tomorrow will be a feast day to honor, the, to honor Yahweh. The, the, the capital letters there are the, are, mean that in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. So they, in their mind, they're going, we're not, we, we know God brought us out of Egypt. Yahweh brought us out of Egypt, but... Moses is off in his interpretation of who this God is. So the next day, the people got up early. They sacrificed burnt offerings and brought friendship offerings. They sat down to eat and drink. Then they got up to dance wildly. The, the NIV, this is NIRV. The NIV says they got up for revelry in front of their God. And in the words of Thomas Cahill, who wrote the book Gift of the Jews, he said that in one fell swoop, they broke five commandments. Those commandments that a few years, days before, they had said, all these we will keep publicly as the blood was sprinkled and the covenant was made. So rather than changing gods, they erupt in revelry. They break the first commandment they, uh, about making a graven image and idolatry. Uh, they certainly broke the commandments of adultery and and covetousness, and taking the name of the Lord in vain. But the worst thing is, is their community was broken. They begin to exploit one another. Instead of a community of love and authenticity, it becomes a community of, of exploitation and, and abuse and objectification of the human body. 
So the Lord spoke to Moses, because God saw it going on. He said, go down. Now, this is a little bit of a tragic pronoun here. <laughs> because this is like your spouse, on your, on your wedding night or during the honeymoon, your spouse gets in an affair with somebody else. This is what's happening to God right here. So his heart is wounded and broken by what's going on. So the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, go down your people. <laughs> you know what? God's hurting right now. God's hurting here. His heart's broken. He's wounded by this. You, your people that you brought up <laughs> out of Egypt have become very sinful. They have quickly turned away. Notice that word quickly again. Hurry, 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 hurry. From what I commanded them. Interesting verse, by the way, in 2 John 9. Can somebody look that up for me? If you have an NIV, 2 John 9. Just hold it there for a minute. They have quickly turned away from what I commanded them. They made themselves a metal statue of a god in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down and sacrificed to it, and they have said, Israel, here is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. So in their mind, even though they thought they were still worshiping Yahweh, God is very clear, this isn't me. It's not me. Anybody have that verse yet? Uh, Rick? There are nine verses in 2 John. Isn't there? Did you hear that phrase? I've never seen that before. He said, anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of God. There it is again. Like, John actually equates heresy with running ahead. Is not continuing in the teaching of Christ. This capacity to wait. So God says, I've seen these people. Thank you, Rick. The, Yahweh said to Moses, they're stubborn. Not where the, the, I think NIV says stiff-necked. It's a picture of a horse who, who, who won't be bridled. You know, when you try to steer a horse, it just won't do that, right? Now leave me alone. I will destroy them because of my great anger. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now there's some really crazy stuff going on here that I don't understand. Because basically, on the surface, it seems like Yahweh is offering Moses the opportunity to be Abraham. I'm going to start all over. We'll just wipe out the past, and you'll become the father of a new nation. Now, I, I have this theory on judgment. I believe that God is a judge. That's part of God's nature and character, because if God wasn't judge, he wouldn't be good. God, we have to know that injustice and oppression and, and human brokenness and sinfulness has to be confronted. Otherwise, we destroy each other. So that's God's intervening character when we talk about God's judgment. But I have, I have a theory, and I might get in trouble with some of you, about God's judgment. I believe that God's judgment has, is primarily God letting us go to do what we want to do. And Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. He says, therefore, in judgment, God gave them up. And as C.S. Lewis said, hell is where God says to us, your kingdom come, your will be done. Heaven is us saying to God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Hell is saying, you, your will be done. So it's God letting us go to do what we want to do and sin carries within itself the consequences of its action. So in, re remember that they are a culture that's filled with brutal gods and goddesses and their understanding of the gods and the way gods operate was, was off. 
But I, I, I honestly believe that God was saying to Moses, here, I'll just let them go. They want to go do that. Let them go. They'll destroy themselves. And let's start over again. And now we get an argue, a wrestling match, an arguing match with God and Moses. Moses starts arguing. And there's, there's something, so, there's a holy mystery happening on here. I talked to my grandson after the soccer game last night. We talked about this almost all the way home. It's way out in Burnaby somewhere. I, it was a beautiful pitch. I could see Mount Baker. It was all pink. Did any of you see that? Mount Baker was all pink. Never seen that before. Beautiful. Soccer game was good too. So Moses then asked the Lord his God to have mercy on the people. He said, Lord, why would you destroy your people in anger? You used your great power and mighty hand to bring them out of Egypt. Why waste all that effort? Think about how much work you've done. That's his first thing. He reasons with God. You've already put so much work into this. Don't chuck it away now. Then he says, number two, this isn't going to make you look very good. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say he brought them out to hurt them? He wanted to kill them in the mountains. He wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. So the second thing is, God, your reputation is at stake here. The Egyptians are going to go, see? Some renegade God took them out there and just to smoke them. And then I love this. This is, this is the most tender one for me. He says, turn away from your anger. It, the actual Hebrew is, would you please repent? Would you change your mind, please? Did you know God? Well, getting ahead of myself. Please take pity on your people. Don't destroy them. Remember your servants. Now, this is amazing. Remember, what about Abraham? I mean, I'm in this story, God. This is Abraham's story. It's not my story. Remember Isaac and Israel. You made a promise to them in your own name. You said, I will make your children after you as many as the stars in the sky. I will give them all this land. I promise them I will belong. It will belong to them forever. Remember those guys, Lord? Remember those guys? All those journeys through following you in faith and you're just going to start all over like that? No, God, I don't want to be the center of the story. I don't want to start the story. I want to be in the story. I think denominations start so many times because people want to start their own story instead of humbly taking their place in the story. Not always, but... Then the Lord took pity on his people. God says, okay. <laughs> I love this. Okay. So the Lord, and, and again, the Hebrew is God repented. God was sorry for what he was about to do. It actually says in the Hebrew, he was sorry that he had intended to let them go, disown them. And Moses, so what's going on here? Like, did God need a nice guy to talk him out of being a bad guy? What's going on? So, I was talking to Karen about this this morning because there's, there's questions I bring to this that I'm probably going to have to leave with you. But it seems to me we know God's character now as revealed in Jesus in the New Covenant. We know how merciful God is. But it seems like God's inviting Moses into some kind of amazing heart thing that's going on. That he's inviting him into a deeper understanding of who he really is. And so let's, let's fast forward because of time. So Moses goes down from the mountain, sees the party, confronts Aaron. Says, Aaron, what were you thinking? I, I didn't have to put this in, but it's just too crazy not to. So Aaron says, please don't be angry. You know how these people like to do what is evil. They said to me, make us a God that will lead us. This fellow Moses brought us up out of Egypt, but we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, anyone who has any gold, jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire. And out came this calf. <laughs> I, can you believe that's in the Bible? 
But isn't that our lives? You ever heard your kids? Have you heard that from your kids? No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So Moses confronts the people. He smashes the calf, puts it into powder, makes some of them drink the water. It's, there's a limited civil war. I mean, for one and a half million people, 3,000 guys died. It, was, it wasn't pretty. But after it's all over and, and the people have repented, Moses goes up the mountain again and he prays for the people this prayer. And this really gets me. Here's the prayer he asked God for as, God's, as he's praying for the people. He went back to the Lord. He said, these people have committed a terrible sin. They've made a God out of gold for themselves. Now please forgive their sin. But if you won't, then erase my name out of the book you've written. Whoa. Now, there's not a lot of mention so far in the Bible about a book, but this is one of the first mentions that there's a book being, there's a story being written. You say, God, God if they're not in the story, I don't want to be in the story. That's just crazy. That's crazy. And he's already... I mean, there's already, already this chance to disown them earlier, and he's, he's, he's argued, but now he gets even more desperate. And he, and he prays this prayer, and of course God says, sorry, that's not on the table for you, Moses. And then Paul, several thousand years later, prays a similar prayer, doesn't he, for Israel. He's praying for Israel. And he says, I would that I were cursed from Christ if that would help them. I am willing even to be separated from Christ for the sake of my sisters and brothers. What's going on here? Well, the only way that we can figure out what's going on is that we follow a God where relationship is actually more important than the mission. Last week really impacted me when I did the kids' orange lesson. You know why? Because it hit me that Abraham regarded his relationship with Lot as more important than the promised land. That's crazy. That's the pillars, folks. That's the boulders of this kingdom that we're in. This is the God that we worship. Relationship is more important than mission. It's more important than promised land. He's a God of solidarity with us. And he did so when on the cross, it says in Corinthians, Christ set us free from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, everyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And then Paul wrote in Corinthians, Christ didn't have any sin, but God made Christ to become sin for us so that we can be made right with God because of what Christ has done for us. So it's like God says, it's like God's heart was engaging Moses and showing him his heart through this whole scenario. That he's a God of solidarity with us. He didn't ask us to come to us. Ephesians says he descended. He went down and down, down, down into the lower parts of the earth. He reached way down. I love that song. When my Savior reached down for me, he had to reach way down for me. He went way down for me. Because his priority is loving, interdependent relationships with him and each other in community. Which requires our willingness to trust God in the face of mystery. Giving up our need for certainty sometimes. Autonomy and to be in control. And again, you know, when I, I best learned that lesson was when I was a parent of teenagers. <laughs> All those James Dobson formula books. <laughs> Didn't work. I had to enter the darkness and the confusion and to say, Jesus, I don't know what to do next, but I know you're with me. I know you're with me. That's all that matters. Well, and God over and over again said, let's just do this together. We'll just do this together. 
and he's still doing it, eh? So, reflect on areas of your life where there is uncertainty right now, ambiguity, mystery. You're waiting in the darkness, in the unknown. How could these be gifts to you in your relationship with God, with others? Instead of seeing them as enemies, how might God be meeting you right there? How might God be wanting to come to you and take you by the hand? Secondly, name some people who've been in solidarity with you. Who's some people who said, Lord, if Dan isn't in, I'm not in either. I have some people in my life, I know, that you don't, don't bring him, then don't bring me. There was that kind of desperation in prayer crying and I know that I felt that way for, for others too who's God inviting you to be in solidarity with and what are some golden calves in your lives that keep you from authentic and interdependent community in the maybe they, they're even in the name of God there's holy things spiritual things but they keep you from Stopping. They keep you from being unhurried. Let's pray. Holy Spirit. <sighs> Holy Spirit, come. Remind us, Lord, of our, our boulders today. This is the law and the prophets, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, may we be a, a church and a community that is known by our love. Just thank you for the way that we've seen your love just flowing today to in the last few weeks and now to Michi. When one member suffers, we all suffer. Lord, would you help us as a church to, not just on Sunday, but through the week, find a pace that is unhurried. I just look at the life of Jesus and just see how often he was willing to stop. And I'm convicted when the woman with the issue of blood touched him and he stopped and he was on the way to heal a, a guy whose daughter was dying and he was a deadline, but he still stopped. Even though he put Jairus' daughter at risk, this upper class family, the daughter was the darling of the family, but Jesus turned around and found another daughter, a daughter of God, the darling of God's heart who'd reached out and touched him in faith, and he stopped and engaged her. So we already see the kingdom of heaven coming through Exodus. We see the values in the heart of God as revealed in Jesus in the gospel. We already see that. Does it, does it mean anything to you to realize that God... It, God is more concerned about knowing you and spending time with you and loving you than using you. That the greatest joy and delight of his heart is just to be with you. In 40 days with Moses, they laughed, they talked to us. Who knows what went on there? They were just together. Just this powerful being together. Wow. So, Lord, just teach us, Lord. Teach us, teach us this way. Continue to train us how to be free, to use our freedom. Cleanse us of our golden calves, those things that we revert to out of fear.
out of insecurity, out of anxiety, out of the need to take charge instead of just falling backward in your arms. Help me, help all of us. Lord, life is real. There's deadlines. There's obligations and commitments. Lord, we got to work. So, Lord, in all of this, would you just teach us your peace? Teach us your way. I just feel like I want to just release you just to take a few minutes just to be together. Still have some time before the kids, about 20 minutes before the kids will be done. So you can pray. You can have coffee. Uh, and we're going to pray for Wade. I forgot. Wade, this is his last Sunday before. Come on up, Wade. Let's pray for you. Uh, before he goes to Cambodia, he's going to be leading a, a mission team, team from of young, young people joining him from Korea to go to Cambodia, part of the Steps and Justice work that they're doing there. So maybe I could just have some of you come up and join me. Let's pray for Wade. Yeah. Come, Holy Spirit. Maybe one of you guys can grab the mic and just pray over. Just pray as God leads you. We just stretch our hands towards Him and we speak protection, provision over Him and the whole family. So, Father God, we pray for your blessing to be on me so he'd be able to make bridges between the um, people he's, between him and, and uh, the people he's going with and between the whole lot of them and uh, the people they're going to. God, that uh, you'd uh, surprise them in a good way yeah. and uh, give them a blessing all around. Uh, so uh, that it would just, the people going would be blessed and the people uh, receiving these guys would be blessed and, uh, and uh, your kingdom would advance uh, through this all. Thank you, God. Yes, Thank you for Wade going. Yes, Jesus. Gordy was talking about um, the elders seeing God. And that there was a whole throne of, of lapis lazuli. I'm sure our daughters would be able to know exactly what gem that is so they could show you later. But I, I um, as Dan was praying for you and I could imagine in my head you being a bridge, just saw your whole being shining in the same way that I imagined that footstool of crystals. And um, I think you, you would be super happy to be a footstool for God. I feel like that's your heart and your character is that you don't have any airs mm -hmm. about you. You would gladly kneel down and have God put his feet on you. Um, but it's, you know, your heart, your heart and your purpose is to, is to do justice. That is who you are. That is totally who you are. I can just attest to that as somebody that sees your life every day. And so I bless you in the authority that I have as a priest of God to go and um, remember that as you shine, those two things can totally coexist as one, that you absolutely could be God's footstool, knelt down and his feet are on you. And at the same time, you're just shi you are shining precious gem and it's all over you. It's like your entire person. So I just bless you and release you. Um, as your wife and also as your fellow minister in the gospel to go and yeah, make God's throne the foundation of his throne is justice. So allow him to come and be present in those places because of the justice that you will help bring in just your subservience and you're willing to lay down and, and just be a servant. It's such a holy, godly thing. And I'm just totally behind you all the way, babe. Totally behind you.
Father, we just see uh, way like an arrow tip drawn out of the quiver of God, and we just thank you for him to be shot forward to hit the mark. The joy of the Lord is his strength. Lord, and I also just see the other quivers in his family unit, Joanna, his kids, they're just tucked back in that quiver, Lord, and we, we thank you that we are part of the family that can send him forth and that we can now just have the covering of God who is really the, um, the soldier. He's the one that's going forward into battle. He stands with Wade, behind Wade, going before Wade, but he also stands with Joanna and the children, Lord, because so many times we're afraid to step out in mission because we know that the enemy comes in. But like a flood, Lord, you will raise up a standard against the enemy. So we just cover Joanna by the blood of Jesus, and we just dictate right now in the name of Jesus, healing and wholeness for Sophia, Eleanor, and Pax. And Lord, we take a stand here as a family that we just look to you for the total blessing as we continue to press into the mission that you've called us to. Like Gordy so powerfully shared, Lord, relationship is more important than the mission. And we just stand strong in solidarity as family to cover the Pallisters in the name of Jesus. All right, well, go in peace, grace of the Lord Jesus, love of God, communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.